Hello and welcome to Thinking Hard and Slow, the podcast of the Royal Institute of Philosophy. I'm Julian Baggini. Our theme of expanding horizons continues this week with Roger Ames taking a deep dive into an important difference between the dominant Chinese and Western approaches to the nature of being itself. Roger Ames is a Humanities Chair Professor at Peking University in Beijing and also Professor Emeritus of Philosophy at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. He's the author and co-author of many, many books, including The Art of Rulership, His Study of Ancient Chinese Political Thought, and Confucian Role Ethics, a Vocabulary. Before we hear the talk, I just want to clarify a few of the terms Ames uses so that those unfamiliar with them aren't thrown from what is otherwise a very clear presentation. First, there's ontology. In its broadest sense, ontology concerns the fundamental nature of being, what it means to be any kind of thing at all. In Western philosophy, most ontologies have been substance ontologies, postulating that fundamental reality is made of some kind of stuff, be it physical or mental. Ames also mentions apodictic knowledge. Apodictic knowledge is knowledge of what is certain or necessarily true. Now, Ames calls his approach comparative cultural hermeneutics. Hermeneutics concerns interpretation and the understanding of ideas. So comparative cultural hermeneutics is the interpretations of ideas in a tradition different from your own. As for the zoetology of the title, Ames will explain that himself. After Roger's talk, there's a discussion featuring questions from our live online audience. Before that, here's Roger Ames on zoetology, a new name for an old way of thinking. As we begin, I have two caveats to make. The first is that ontology as a term is also a new term for an old way of thinking, that ontology uh, comes to us in the 17th century to German philosophers. And secondly, I'm going to be talking about uh, this contrast between ontological thinking and zoetological thinking, but it's not a contrast between Chinese and Western philosophy that At the end of the 19th century, uh, Nietzsche's God is Dead, he signals a profound zoetological turn in the internal critique within the Western philosophical narrative. And so the kind of process philosophy, phenomenology, hermeneutics, and so on, that is um, the philosophical tradition of the 20th century, is in fact converging uh, with the uh, traditional uh, Chinese zoetological way of thinking. So the contrast isn't between Chinese and Western philosophy. Two caveats. And what I want to try to do today is the theme of the lecture series is expanding horizons. And so my the first part of my talk is what method can we use to make those responsible cultural comparisons that will allow us uh, to expand our horizons. And secondly, I want to try to apply the method that I uh, recommend and um, try to to establish a contrast between classical Greek and classical Chinese philosophy along the lines of this ontology-zoetology distinction, uh, a distinction that will give us a contrast between the conception of a discrete human being and what I would call a human becoming uh, that we have within the Chinese narrative. So 
A familiar way of thinking about methodologies we associate with rational, systematic philosophies are the formal principles or theoretical procedures of inquiry employed in a particular field or discipline. For example, in philosophy, we speak of Socratic dialectics or Cartesian rational skepticism as methodologies and and of analytic, logical, and phenomenological methodologies, among many others. In looking for a starting point in formulating my own method for doing comparative philosophy, I want to avoid the familiar theory and practice uh, dichotomy by appealing to John Dewey's postulate of immediate empiricism and the primacy that Dewey gives to practice. Since all human problems arise within the hadness of immediate experience of specific persons in the world, the resolution to these problems must be sought through theorizing the same experience in our best effort to make its outcomes more productive and intelligent. Hadness for Dewey is not some claim to pure or primordial experience, but simply what experience is as it is had by these persons who are experiencing it. In formulating this method, Dewey begins by asserting that immediate empiricism postulates that things, anything, everything, in the ordinary or non-technical use of the term thing, are what they are experienced as. If you wish to find out what subjective or objective, physical, mental, cosmic, psychic, cause, substance, purpose, activity, evil, being, quality, any philosophic term, in short, means go to experience and see what the thing is experienced as. As an alternative to starting from abstract philosophical concepts and theories, Dewey is arguing that all such terms of art must be understood as the that's of specifically experienced meanings. Dewey's method provides us with a way of ascertaining what our language actually means and precludes the dualisms that usually follow in the wake of deploying abstract and thus decontextualizing terms such as reality, rationality, objectivity, justice, and methodology itself. Corollary to Dewey's immediate empiricism is recognition of the fact that this experience itself is always a collaborative and unbounded affair. His hadness, far from precluding a robust subjective aspect, insists upon it. Hilary Putnam is making the same point regarding the holistic and inclusive nature of experience when he insists that the heart of pragmatism, it seems to me, of James's and Dewey's pragmatism, if not Peirce's, was the supremacy of the agent point of view. If we find that we must take a certain point of view, use a certain conceptual system when engaged in a practical activity in the widest sense of practical activity, then we must not simultaneously advance the claim that it is not really the way things are in themselves. Henry Thoreau, too, reflects on this unavoidably collateral nature of acquiring new knowledge as we move forward in our lives, observing that a man receives only what he is ready to receive, whether physically or intellectually or morally. We hear and apprehend only what we already half know. Every man thus tracks himself through life in all his hearing and reading and observation and traveling. His observations make a chain. The phenomenon or fact that cannot in any wise be linked with the rest which he has observed, he does not observe. 
When we carry Dewey's postulate of immediate empiricism over to the task and the responsibility of interpreting another philosophical tradition, if we are to resist cultural reductionism and to allow the other culture to speak on its own terms, there is no alternative but to employ a comparative cultural hermeneutics as our method of inquiry. The starting point of hermeneutics is an acknowledgement of the interpretive interdependence of the structures of meaning within the experience from which understanding is to be gained. Hans Georg Gadamer insists that understanding is not a method which the inquiring consciousness applies to an object it chooses and so turns it into an object of knowledge. Rather, being situated within an event of tradition, a process of handing down, is a prior condition of understanding. Understanding proves to be an event. Hence, we must pursue an interpretation of another tradition through a fusing of horizons in the contrapuntal relationship between learning what we can about the other culture, while in that same effort, endeavoring in the process to become increasingly self-conscious of the assumptions and concerns we willy-nilly bring with us in our best attempt to understand it. It is in this spirit that Gadamer uses the term prejudices, not as blind biases, but on the contrary, in the sense of coming to the clear understanding that a cognizance of our own prejudgments facilitates, rather than obstructs, our access and insight into something we do not know. These prejudgments are not only our presuppositions, but also our projective interests and concerns. For Gadamer, the hermeneutical circle within which understanding is always situated requires of us that we continually strive to be aware of what we carry over into our new experience, since critical attention to our own assumptions and purposes can serve to positively condition the depth and the quality of our interpretation of what we encounter. To be clear, the claim is that a comparative cultural hermeneutics has the potential to inspire a greater degree of insight than simply working within either tradition separately because the analogical associations and contrasts that emerge in the process are productive of additional meaning. As we learn more about the other tradition, we learn more about ourselves. Such analogical correlations that appeal to either similarities or differences between the traditions can be productive or otherwise to the extent that they are a source of increased meaning, that is, to the extent to which they provide us with something to say. Again, analogies can thus be productive of both associations and contrasts, and we can learn much from both. Aristotle's teleology, his substance ontology, and his reliance upon logic as the demonstrable method that will secure us truth might serve as a contrastive analogy with a Chinese process cosmology made explicit in the Book of Changes that abjures fixed beginnings and ends, that precludes any strict formal identity, and that will not yield up the principle of non-contradiction which enables erstwhile apodictic knowledge. On the other hand, Aristotle's resistance to platonic abstraction in 
promoting and aggregating practical wisdom correlates rather productively with one of the central issues in classical Confucian moral philosophy, that is, Aristotelian phronesis with its commitment to the cultivation of excellent habits in the practical affairs of everyday living has some immediate resonance with the ubiquitous Confucian assumption that knowing and doing are inseparable and mutually entailing. Well, the meticulous scholar Nathan Sivan is adamant in exhorting us to resist either-or simplicity in our cultural comparisons, he at the same time has also observed that man's prodigious creativity seems to be based on the permutations and recastings of a rather small stock of ideas. If such is the case, how do we then get to this rather small stock of ideas that might allow for the mapping out of their subsequent permutations and recastings? What in our ways of thinking grounded in the classical Greek and Chinese worldviews are the underlying similarities and dissimilarities? What are their respective prejudices? Where in their deepest cultural strata are the uncommon assumptions, the prejudgments that have their beginnings in the self-understanding of the always situated human experience as these cultural habits and the hypergoods have been sedimented into their persistent yet ever-evolving common sense? One prejudice of the first order that emerges early in the Western philosophical narrative is a commitment to substance ontology with all of its far-reaching implications. Ontology privileges being per se and a categorical language with its essence and attribute dualism, that is, substances as property bearers and properties that are born, respectively. Such ontological thinking animates Plato's pursuit of formal, real definitions in his quest for certainty, that is, definitions not of words, but of what really is, and underlies Aristotle's taxonomical science of knowing what is what. For these classical Greek philosophers, only what is real and thus true can be the proper object of knowledge, giving us a logic of the changeless. Indeed, such ontological assumptions produce a categorical way of thinking captured in the principle of non-contradiction that claims something cannot be A and not A at the same time. Hegel, in his introduction to the Encyclopedia Logic, reflects at great length upon the question, where does philosophy begin? Where does the inquiry start? Because philosophy does not have a beginning in the sense of other sciences, says Hegel, it must be the case that the beginning only has a relation to the subject who takes the decision to philosophize. Aristotle, before Hegel, was also concerned about where the philosophical investigation begins. And in looking for this beginning, we might say he took what is a person as his very first question. Aristotle's categories is the first text in the standard uh, Aristotelian corpus, and Aristotle's initial project in the categories is to identify the full set of questions that must be asked to give a comprehensive account of what can be predicated of a subject, with his own concrete example of the subject being the man in the marketplace. What is not only his first question, but is also his primary one, because in Aristotle's answer to this question, he introduces an ontological disparity by first identifying the necessary essence or substance of the subject, what is a man, followed by questions that distinguish this person's various secondary and contingent attributes, what is in a man. 
Aristotle explains this ontological distinction between substance and attribute in the following term. To give a rough idea, examples of substance are man, horse, and then the attributes are quantity, when, where, what somebody is doing, and so on. But but what is important is that the the substance is what is primary. For Aristotle, the what question has primacy because it provides the essential subject, that is, what identifies the underlying substance of what the man is. Aristotle underlines this disparity in observing that all the other things are said of the primary substances as subjects or in them as subjects. So if the primary substances did not exist, it would be impossible for any of the other things to exist. David Wiseman uh, remarks that in Aristotle's ontology, things that have matter and form, primary substances, are freestanding, each is self-sufficient. Aristotle would have us believe that if things' relations to other things, including spatial, temporal, and causal relations, are incidental to its identity. He reasoned that identity is established by form so that relations to other things may only support, somewhat disguise, or threaten the thing. In contrast with ontology, there is an alternative equally ingrained prejudice in classical Chinese cosmology. Borrowing the Greek term zoe for life, we might appeal to the kind of zoetological thinking, sheng sheng lun, made explicit in the vocabulary of the Book of Changes, the first among the Confucian classics. This seminal text that takes change as its title, defines the motive force within change itself, specifically and denotatively, as procreative living. It is procreative living that is meant by change. Life, growth, and birthing within this vital process is real and will not be denied. Process cosmology gives privilege to an irreducibly relational becoming and the vital interdependent correlative categories needed to speak process and its eventful content. Indeed, in this processual cosmology, the growth that attends such generative living is not only ceaseless and boundless, but is further elevated to serve as the greatest capacity and highest value of the cosmos itself, the greatest capacity of the cosmos if it is life, life itself. Unlike the Greeks, who begin from the certainty and exclusiveness guaranteed by ontology as a science of being in itself, with zoetology, living and growing are taken as the point of departure, and primacy is given to the constitutive nature of vital relationality. In Confucian cosmology that shares with Dewey and pragmatism the primacy given to unbounded immediate experience, there is no outside of the time-space world, only the experience of worlding that is internal to it. And the dynamics of the flux and flow of such worlding are integral to itself without the need to appeal to something foundational and causal, some concept of God or some uh, underlying substratum. So Tang Juni, the contemporary uh, distinguished philosopher, says when Chinese philosophers speak of the world, they are thinking of the world that we are living in. There is no world beyond or outside of the one we are experiencing. They're not referencing a world or the world, but are simply saying worlding, where the fact that world as such does not have a definite article in front of it is truly significant. 
in the minds of Chinese people, continues Tang, the cosmos has always been nothing more than a continuous stream, a kind of flow. All of the things and events of the cosmos are just a continuing process, and beyond this process, there is not some other fixed substratum that supports it. For Tang Juni, the whence and whither questions would seem to give us more important information than the what. It is the narrative itself that is a revealing of the whatness of experience. Take the fact that a concrete existent is vital, a person. In speaking of its natural propensities, what is important is not remarking on what the propensities of this entity are, but in assaying the direction of its existence. What is its story? What is its narrative? What is the narrative of this person? It is only in an existent having life and growth that it has natural propensities. Not human nature is a fix given, but the capacity for growth within its environing conditions. The narrative of any particular thing emerges genealogically in the middle as the growth of a focal and vital center within an unbounded field of experience, a genealogical beginning nested within narratives within narratives. This means that a particular person as an emergent subject and its context are interdependent and mutually defining, a cosmological postulate that Tang Juni has called the inseparability of one and many, that a person and a person's context are always mutually entailing. Implicated within this holographic focal subject is the entire unbounded field of its vital relations, its ecology. So this is kind of ecological thinking where anything within the ecology is a function of its relationships with everything else within the kind of organic relationality uh, of the ecology itself. Thus, everything is within any particular focus and any focal particular is what it means for itself, for its context, and for the unsummed totality. As Joseph Needham has observed, this Chinese processual and organic cosmology has its own causality and its own logic. Aristotle's causality gives us the language of cause and effect, agency, material cause, potential, and the ultimate effect. The alternative zootological Zuran causality means that everything is causally implicated in anything. Philosophically nuanced interpreters reflecting on the use of Zuran in the canonical text often choose to render it self-sowing, that this is worlding, world-making, self-sowing. Ran means sowing or sitching in the sense of the emergence and presencing of things with the suggested image of rising up like fire. And the notion of zi or self that then has three aspects. First, this ziran causality means that the self in the self-sowing process is certainly uniquely what it is, one of a kind. It is a continuing specific identity. Secondly, this identity has both an inner and an outer dimension to it, perceived from the outside, but also lived from the inside. It is this existential self-awareness that is prospectively negotiating its identity from within, having a projective influence in setting and maintaining its horizons within its environing conditions. And thirdly, since this identity is constituted by an unbounded field of relations, there's no outside of an ecology. The zi is what it is by virtue of the quality of the coalescence it has achieved within the manifold of relations that conspire together to make it insistently so.
Said simply, since everything causes anything, any particular thing is both the cause and the effect of everything else. Aristotle's logic, grounded in strict identity, gives us the one method of establishing demonstrable truth, but zoetology's alternative generative logic requires analogical or abductive reasoning that, in addition to the familiar functions of deduction and induction, has the capacity to produce new meaning. Resisting Needham's own exclusive categorical thinking that would give Chinese cosmology its own logic, we can appeal to Peirce, who found it necessary to develop the concept of abductive or explanatory or presumptive reasoning as a necessary supplement to the more familiar notions of deductive and inductive reasoning. Peirce wanted from reasoning the capacity to produce new ideas, new meaning, to go beyond what is already stated in the premises to contribute additional information and content. Deductive and inductive reasoning are used for justificatory purposes to confirm the validity of a given hypothesis and are a source of security in our thinking. Abduction has the function not of justifying hypotheses, but belongs to that phase of inquiry in which a theory is formulated in the first place. Perhaps the most interesting reading of Persian abduction is that it is the unbounded process of making productive correlations, generating new meaning, taking as its only boundaries the limit of our imagination. Contemporary philosopher, and I wanted to take this occasion to introduce you to some of of China's most important philosophers, uh, Zhao Tingyang, uh, in his introduction to a recent book, China Bestowed, offers us his own version of this ontological and zoetological distinction. How is an existent um, created? With respect to an entity that is self-conscious, such as human society or a civilization, existence is no longer the natural existence of how something is as it is, or per se, but it is a historical existence of historicity. For this reason, the question of being is changed to become equivalent to the question of making or doing or living. Making or doing or living is to go and create a history of existence. That is, it ensures that an entity becomes a historical entity that cannot be reduced to the ordinary concept of mere being. The types of questions raised by Chinese and ontological metaphysical thinking differ, but both are matters of profound thought. In terms of the direction that such thought takes, ontological thinking is thinking that deals with necessity, while Chinese philosophy is thinking that deals with possibility. In terms of the structure of thought, ontological thinking provides a dictionary kind of explanation of the world, seeking to set up an accurate understanding of the limits of all things, this taxonomical way of of knowing the world. In simple terms, it determines what is what, and all concepts are footnotes to being or is. Chinese thought, however, is an explanation of the grammar of the world, striving for a coordinated understanding of the relationships between heaven and humankind, humankind and things, or humans and humans, by which all doings are generated, with a special emphasis on the mutuality of relationships and the compatibility of all things. Hence the terms persistence through change, optimal harmony, and focusing the familiar mentioned by the ancients are all insightfully gathered under the notion of proper measure by Li Zihou.
In this sense, whatever gives rise to questioning is an opening up of possibilities, change, generation, the future, uncertainty, interaction, compatibility, complementarity, and so on. Going further, we can say that change is the way of heaven, is the way of nature. The primary question for the human way is that of generation and regeneration, and the first step herein is growth. This is the starting point for the evolutionary thread of Chinese thought. The doing of growth must seek what a thing relies on to be deeply rooted and firmly planted in its growth. Therefore, growth, first of all, requires putting down roots. The two metaphors of growth and putting down roots set out the path for Chinese thought. The art of growth is a kind of living ontology and not one of the fine arts. Yet this ontology of existing at the same time is made manifest as a testimonial to the aesthetic prompting Confucius to say that life is consummated by music. This would seem to imply that the metaphysics of growth can only ever be manifested in the phenomenal world. As such, growth is a form of rejoicing. In the interrelated growth of the myriad things, this thriving becomes their source of rejoicing, that is, the rejoicing about the interrelated growth of the myriad things. This explains why there are among the six classics, the odes and music, that are directly related to aesthetics. Music is not restricted to music as such, but is used in the general sense of all aesthetic experience. There is a permeating musicality that moves in step with the rhythmical changes of the way of heaven that is the music of growth. A corollary contrast that distinguishes ontological thinking from ontology is that the process of knowing is not confined to discriminating what is antecedently real. It is a generative process of realizing in the sense of making a possible world real. Knowing is to participate in the always local process of world-making. Meaning is not limited to a given reality that, conditioned by the necessity of being in itself, is thus available for rational discovery. Instead, zootology is the art of living, defines what can be cultivated and is thus realizable in the human experience. Zootology is the fundamentally aesthetic process of cultivating meaningful relations under the various rubrics of growth, such as education, morality, beauty, and creativity. Elsewhere and early on, David Hall and I coined the terms art contextualis as our way of expressing this meaning-productive art of making correlations and recontextualizing different aspects of experience. Angus Graham, reflecting on linguistic forms, appears that Aristotle's procedure is to isolate one thing from another. Thus, Aristotle's thinking is noun-centered. Ontology discriminates what can be said about something from what is contingently in it, with the subject being a necessary condition for the subsequent accidents. The noun thus deployed separates and sets boundaries on things, and in so doing establishes a distinction between the essential subject and its contingent attributes. Such an ontological disparity between essence and attributes introduces a doctrine of second-order external relations as they come to conjoin otherwise independent, self-sufficient entities. Zootology, with its radical empiricism, construes experience in terms of interpenetrating events, where linguistically an eventful gerundif language is privileged and the erstwhile distinction between things and relations has no purchase.
Tao, as a vital and unbounded ecology of experience, is everything that is happening as it is constituted by the relations obtaining among things, not the way, but a collective way-making of the ecology. That is, vital relations are themselves first order and constitutive of the unfolding pattern of events. With respect to the relational understanding of persons as human becomings, there is some momentum in the contemporary Western philosophical literature, literature broadly represented by figures such as Dewey and more recently Charles Taylor, Mark Johnson, Michael Sandel, who are taking the discussion of persons away from old assumptions about discrete individuals and in the direction of relationally constituted entities who engage each other through their patterns of relations and webs of interlocution within their horizons of relevance. Viewed synoptically in terms of cosmic order, ontological thinking posits a rationalized and reductionistic part-whole model, the cosmoi are disciplined by the laws of a single-ordered cosmos, the plurality of beings originate in and are regulated by antecedent first principles to constitute a universe. By contrast, zootological thinking posits a holistic, aesthetic, and genealogical understanding of an unsummed cosmic order in which all the unique details are relevant to the totality of the effect, a world in which there is no final beginning or end, and no privileged single order. Acknowledging Tang Juni's cosmological postulate, of the inseparability of one and many, the language of Tao and the myriad happenings is to be understood as two aspectual, non-analytical ways of looking at the same continuing process. Just to finish up, um, what I have wanted to do today is I wanted to suggest a comparative cultural hermeneutics as an analogical method to access an interpretive context for taking another tradition on its own terms, locating it within its own assumptions. I wanted to appeal to both associative and contrastive analogies as sources of meaning. I wanted to recommend a retail rather than wholesale analogies, uh, analogies that are, are modest. And then I wanted to take ontology and zootology immodestly as two among a rather small stock of ideas, each of which produce much by way of recastings and permutations. And I wanted to construct a basis for a kind of mutual mirroring illumination between philosophical traditions by establishing a contrast between ontological and zootological thinking. And I wanted to suggest just a few of the many implications of such a different uh, way of thinking, a different causality, a different logic, a different conception of human beings and human becomings. And then I wanted to, to make the argument that many of China's contemporary philosophers uh, are using their own language to say something that is similar. Thank you very much. Where can we start? Because there is so much here. Can, can I say a little bit, first of all, perhaps trying to sort of like unpack a few things, uh, get a little bit of extra clarity on things that uh, yeah, maybe, particularly if we're unfamiliar, we may not have um, fully got first time. I thought it was very interesting when you're talking about Chinese cosmology and you use this term of worlding. And it's and if I've got this right, you know, the idea that there is no world outside of our world, there's no substrate, as it were, 
Now, one thing that's interesting about that is people who have only heard a few superficial things about Chinese thought may have heard of these expressions and you refer to them yourself, one of the, the, the way of heaven, or people talk about the mandate of heaven. So this thing called heaven, that's in the typical English translation in Chinese thought. And superficially, that might suggest this sort of two world kind of way of looking at things. Um, is that mistaken? Uh, do we have to understand, I think it's Tian, uh, heaven in Chinese thought as not being separate from the world? What, what does it mean? And is, is it a one world, as it were, cosmology? You've really asked a, a very important fundamental question, uh, Julian. Um, it is because uh, the Chinese cultural tradition was introduced into the Western Academy by missionaries that if you go to Foyle's bookstore, you'll find that Chinese philosophy is not shelved in philosophy with Kant and with Hegel, is shelved in uh, Eastern religions near the self-help help books. If you go into the library, uh, Chinese philosophy is not shelved in philosophy, it's shelved in the religion section. And so the terminologies that were used uh, to translate Chinese culture uh, into English language, into European languages, Latin, um, are this religious vocabulary. And so you, you uh, Tian, which, is, which has to do with an ancestral uh, tradition that has to do with ancestral sacrifices, um, becomes a capital H heaven. And any English reader does exactly what you've just done. And you say you associate that. That's a metonym for a transcendent Abrahamic conception of God. They translate E, uh, which means appropriateness, into righteousness. And so that gives you comporting yourself according to the will of God. They translate Ren into benevolence, which is a Christian virtue. They translate Li into ritual, and that gives you the church. And so by the time that you're, you've done, the key philosophical vocabulary has converted uh, Confucianism into uh, Christianity. I mean, that is very interesting because, I mean, again, correct me if I'm wrong here, if you sort of resist those, those translations and you look at Chinese philosophy for what it is, um, would you say it's accurate to say that what we've got is a, a highly naturalistic tradition and perhaps you know um, perhaps more naturalistic certainly than western tradition has been always using a term like naturalistic uh, problematic because of its associations in western thought no naturalistic i think in in the sense of naturalistic of course philosophically is protean i mean it's got all different ways of parsing it but but it's naturalistic in the sense of abjuring supernaturalism there, there is a, a religious dimension to this uh, Chinese cosmology, but it is a family-centered uh, concept of religiousness. If, if we take the Latin term for religion, uh, Julian, religare, it means to bind tightly. And if you think of uh, Abrahamic religion with a God that is the source of truth and beauty and goodness, then binding tightly means to get close to God. But in the Chinese tradition, in the absence of that kind of, of supernatural substratum, 
what you have is you have the idea of binding tightly as being Li, as being these the social grammar, the, the family, the relationships that are obtained among human beings. And so you have a kind of family-centered religiousness as opposed to a God-centered religiousness. Again, I mean, this related idea, I think, is you, you talked about, I think, the sort of radical empiricism of this stoatology. And then you also talked about Dewey in terms of like a, something that in the Western tradition we might be able to find some some analogue with. And so this idea that, you know, it, it really is a matter of going to experience and, and starting there. Again, I wonder if you just say something about that, because again, I think that perhaps um, with a superficial understanding, may, people may hear of concepts like Tao and Tianya, way of heaven and everything, and ancestors, and think there is something, you know, as you say, it gets put in the sort of Eastern religion sections, not the philosophies section. Do you think it's a case for saying that actually, you know, the Chinese tradition is, is more, how can we say, consistently and thoroughgoingly empirical than the Western one? That would be my point. And that is that with the internal critique within Western philosophy at the end of the 19th century, you know, that has produced this incredible century that we've had in uh, Western philosophy of non-systematic philosophy, that there's a convergence with the Chinese tradition. The Chinese tradition, uh, you know, we use the word naturalism, naturalistic. Uh, We can use the word empiricistic. The Confucian tradition is all about taking the ordinary experience of the human being and making it extraordinary. And so the the love of a grandmother for her granddaughter is the most ordinary thing in the world, but also the most extraordinary. And so the focus of Confucian philosophy has to do with with family relations. It has to do with uh, education. It has to do with our relationship to the to the cultural tradition, the people who have come before and who have bequeathed uh, a legacy of of culture that civilizes us, that makes us into into something elegant. Uh, so the focus is not on speculation. It's not about an immortal soul. It's not about um, what happens after we die. There's a passage in Confucius where one of his um, students asks him, how do we serve the gods? And Confucius says, first learn how to serve other people. And uh, the student then says, well, what happens when we die? And Confucius says, first learn how to live, to, to be alive. And if you do take that focus on experience the world as we find it, and as you say, you resist speculation, you were talking about comparing that with the ontology which is dominant in the West, the idea that as a substrate to existence, we must find being, substances, and so forth. So would the idea from the Chinese perspective, is that a sort of an unempirical thesis, if you like? Is it, is, is it sort of going beyond experience to even postulate underlying substances? Exactly. Um, the point is, this is really... Is, is interesting, and that is that when we had this revolution in the Western philosophical tradition at the end of the 19th century, this post-Darwinian, I mean, think of Darwin, the influence of Darwin on philosophy. Darwin says no to the idea of Aristotle's uh, uh, concept of species, something that is permanent and unchanging, immutable species, 
uh, Darwin says, the world, the experience of the human being is hybridic. All different species are constantly interacting and, and changing uh, in, in light of the environing conditions. And so that, that turn in Western philosophy is itself not only a rejection of ontological thinking, but a, a judgment that that kind of ontological thinking is fallacious. It's, it, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's wrong thinking, that there is nothing that is fixed and final in the human experience. And so phenomenology and pragmatism and existentialism and all of these different movements, hermeneutics, are all part of this kind of rejection of that way of thinking. What is really important in saying that is that an awful lot of good things came out of a fallacious way of thinking. When you think of Newtonian science, when you think of democracy, uh, human rights, because all of these are centered on a concept of human being, a concept of objectivity uh, that, that, um, that belongs to that kind of ontological way of thinking, that categorical way of thinking. So it's, it's, it's a really quite a, an interesting story. Um, that old way of thinking is, is, is still very much part of our common sense. I mean, we, we live in a world, Julian, where you look around and you really see independent things. That way of thinking is, um, is ontological thinking. You know, you look at another human being and human beings have their integrity. They're separate, you know. That way of thinking is, is ontological thinking. Um, we just did a, this is, this is a little bit interesting. We just did a, a conference a couple of weeks ago on the question, who is Chinese? What does it mean to be Chinese? And um, one way of thinking about it, our uh, way of thinking, our, our way of thinking would be being Chinese has to do with, with who your parents are and who your culture is and, and, and so on. But, but the idea of is or is not is our way of thinking. Either you're Chinese or you're not. But, um, but my paper was, what would Confucius say? Everyone is more or less Chinese. That, um, that the human experience is not defined by some kind of eth ethnic or, or uh, political identity. I, I'm an American, but, uh, but my family was British. My, my, my mother was English. And I live in China. And so the, the human experience is, 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 is deep and in, within a human ecology. Like today, I feel myself very much an American, I feel myself very much British, I feel myself very much Ukrainian today. You know, I have a responsibility for those people too. And so the idea that you that you are or you are not is, is categorical thinking, uh, ecological thinking, uh, zoetological thinking, says that we're all in this living ecology together and that we have to recognize that interdependence. There's this phrase you use, something like historical entity implies sort of doing uh, rather than being. And that sort of resonates with me. So to give it a background, doing my PhD thesis on personal identity in the analytic tradition, it struck me sort of quite early on in that, that it, there was something almost odd, a, a real problem in personal identity over time in the Western tradition because it assumes this, these kind of substances. A, a person is a thing, and the problem is that persons change over time. 
So there's, in a sense, the the problem is generated from that. You don't even have to have a particular problem with persons, really. Uh, you know, if you've got if something's changing over time, how can it remain the same thing? It creates this sort of big puzzle. And actually, you know, my own conclusion, to put it a bit aphoristically, was that you know, self is a, a verb disguised as a noun. Right? You know, that I is it almost says what what we do rather than what we're being. Um, and I just wanted to, didn't want to give a little speech on that, but I just w- wanted you, your view on this, that it seems to me that what you're kind of saying is that for something to be, I think you use the term a historical entity, and that has that term entity, uh, entity is a thing, but you can't really make sense of, hi- of anything as a historical entity, in other words, something that exists over time, unless you see what is primary about it as being what it does. Is that correct? Or if it's not quite correct, please tell us the correct way of understanding it. Well, you, I mean, you, you summarized in, in, in framing the problem precisely the Greek ontological problem. How can, how can identity, how can you have an identity and at the same time change? And so that gives you the idea of substance, that gives you the idea of the human being as your identity. That's your fundamental identity. You can't change that. Uh, but you can go to different places and you can live at different times and so on. So that gives you your uh, concept of the human being. The only um, difference I would make in your use of the idea that a human being is a verb, I, I would I would recommend the idea of the gerund rather than the verb. Like the verb separates the, itself from the noun. So it's activity without the the noun. What I would say is that the gerund is a verbal noun. So you get both the verb and the noun. And that's where I get this idea of human becoming. You know, that uh, a human becoming is not who you are. It's your narrative. It's your your eventful story. So, uh, absolute. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that you're correcting our analytic friends. <laughs> I, I do my best. I think you're doing a, a better job. Um, I've got a question here, actually, from Andrew Lambert. I believe he's an old, an old uh, colleague of yours. Uh, I'm Andrew myself, I believe. Um, actually, two parts. Let's, let's put what's on the screen first. There's a bit of follow-up to this, because I think this is interesting. He says, how should we relate a processed view of the world including relationally constituted identity, with the many fixed accounts of ritual and social practices in the texts. And there's a kind of follow-up question as well, I'll just read it. It says, on, on the one hand, we have a uniqueness, uniqueness and emerging novelty, but on the other, there is seemingly persistent and fixed ways of doing things. How should we understand these two thrusts? I guess part of what Andrew's saying um, if he's not saying it, he's making me think about it anyway, is that for all this talk about, uh, you know, change flux, being, becoming, activity, et cetera, et cetera, there do seem to be sort of rigidities and continuities and, and fixed ways of, of, of being and doing in, in Chinese thought. Is there any kind of tension there? Are there two thrusts between persistent and fixed ways of doing things and uniqueness and emerging novelty? Very nice. And thank you for your question, Andrew. We do go back a long way, uh, Andrew and I. Yeah, the, the language that we find in the Book of Changes is bien tong. Bien means to change. Tong means to persist. And so all of the human experience has to be understood within that tension between 
uh, persistence and change. And so the 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 um, the issue would would be with the word fixed. Um, what you have is you have Lee, these this social grammar. You have the the institutions of family. You have the an, institutions of ancestor reverence. You have the institutions of 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 education and so on. And all of these are conservative, in the sense that they conserve what is hugely valuable within the tradition, and that is the the cultural legacy. Each generation in the Chinese tradition has the capacity, the responsibility to inherit the tradition, to understand it as clearly as they can, to expand upon it by writing commentary, to um, use it to address the pressing issues of the time, and then when their hair turns white, to pass it on to the next generation and to recommend that they do the same. And so each generation has this responsibility of building a connector between the generation before and the generation that uh, that follows. Like, and that, that process um, is formal. Like you have to have form in order to have refinement. And so the, the conservation of the, of the form is important, but, but the form is also hybridic. If we think in in terms of our own experience, uh, you you Julian, you and Andrew are are younger than me, but I grew up in a family where the father was the breadwinner, the mother stayed home and looked after six kids. That's not the model that we have today. The model we have today is fewer children, and uh, and a husband and wife both uh, in the in the uh, workforce. And so, so the the institution of family Li is not fixed. Uh, it evolves in different circumstances, and and values evolve with it. Um, that old way, the 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 breadwinner and the and the little lady at home. Uh, my wife would uh, would not countenance that for a moment. I would be on the street, you know, if if I tried to live my marriage the way my father did. So. These these um, institutions are are conservative, and yet at the same time they are evolving. Interesting thought there. Um, if you if you look at perhaps you know the last sort of several centuries, it might seem superficially paradoxical in the sense that the Western way of thinking is more essentializing, more about fixedness, etc. And yet, you know, seemingly it's been changed. Seen more changes. It's been more dynamic. It's it's moved forward a lot. Uh, China seems like the more conservative culture, uh, despite the fact that you know it, it, you can easily make the case, as you've just done in the text, that uh, it fully embraces the idea that everything has to evolve and change. Now, I'm saying this very deliberately, as this is the way it might seem. Um, do you think those perceptions are misleading? Or do you think there's something to them? And and either, either way, do you think there's anything to to be to help us explain these uh, different developments of, let's say, you know, uh, Europe since the sort of Enlightenment age and China by understanding their different philosophical traditions? Excellent. I mean, when when you think of the word creativity. Like we really we live in a in a world that is entrepreneurial. We live in a world that really celebrates uh, innovation, that celebrates avant-garde and all the rest of it. And yet, 
the word creativity, the way that we use it, like if I were to say, I know for a fact that Julian is morally creative, uh, we might celebrate Julian, we might think, we might appreciate his rakish charm, but, but somebody who's morally creative is kind of a frightening uh, idea. If you say that somebody is financially creative, it means that um, that they're dealing. They're, it's, it's 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 false. If somebody is scientifically creative, means that they're cooking their experiments. If somebody is is religiously creative, the Pope is not religiously creative. The Pope is doing uh, is representing God. And so the word creativity. We, when we think of the word creativity, we think of fiction. We think of art. We think of sort of. We don't think of the the central projects of the human experience: science, religion, morality, and so on. We don't associate creativity with that, and that that has the tradition. Creativity belongs to God, um, uh, and, and if you do have creativity, then you have uh, Nietzsche's Ubermensch, you have Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. You have Milton's Satan. You have uh, Goethe's Faust. That creativity somehow or other seems to be an offense against something that is more fundamental. And so the idea of creativity, I think, is exaggerated within our tradition. And the idea that, that, that the Chinese tradition is conservative is also an exaggeration. When you, when you take a term like Tao in, in uh, Chinese, uh, Tao is not the way. That, again, a Christian translation uh, with a capital W, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But, but way is way-making. In, in Chinese, ren nang hong dao. Human beings are able to expand the way. Fei dao hong ren. It's not the Tao that expands the human being. Dao, xing jia er cheng. The way is made in the walking. Um, so the way is not something that is given. Uh, the way is something that has to be extended in every generation, and so the creativity in the in the uh, in this Confucian tradition, in this Chinese tradition, is is there in an important way as well. well. There is creativity in our world, of course, and we are morally creative. You know, we have to be morally creative, um, but the way in which we think about it is still ontological. There's another question I we come to quite nicely here. They want to ask about your notion of the time in Chinese uh, philosophy. I think this is naturally sort of follows. We've talked a lot about how there's this emphasis on on you know change, movement, process, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and this may, maybe this is too big a question though to answer. But does that mean there's a, a importantly different concept of understanding of time in Chinese philosophy compared to the dominant one in the West? And of course, we've got to be aware of the fact that w whenever we contrast China, the Western, you know, we're simplifying uh, from the outset, aren't we? Because there are different currents of thought and whatever. We, we won't, we're talking about what's most dominant. We're not trying to generalize about every Chinese philosopher or every Western thinker. You're really making an important point, Julian. Think of Heidegger. Uh, what is his most important book? It's Being in Time. That really is the way of thinking about time that we find in the um, Chinese tradition. The word world in Chinese, we use this word worlding. Shi jie is world in Chinese. Shi means an epoch, and jie means the boundary. 
So it's the boundary of an epoch. And so the word time and place are come together. And so instead of, of place and time, what you have in the Chinese tradition is taking place, that, that um, happening, event. And that's the notion of Dao. Um, the word for cosmos in Chinese is Yu Zhou. Yu is space. Zhou is temporality. And so the idea of time and space is always together. That's what Heidegger was trying to do in challenging the old way of thinking about being. He wanted to put being in its relationship with uh, time in order to recover the temporality, the historicity uh, that is, is implicit in the, in the human experience. And so Heidegger and um, uh, the classical Chinese way of thinking about uh, being in time are really resonant. That question had a little follow-up, actually, which is a, a perhaps more general point was interesting. We, you talked about how we often sort of impose these uh, Western categories on Chinese thought, and this is because of the missionaries who came over and so forth. And there's this sort of debate about whether to talk about Chinese philosophy or, or Chinese thought, and the argument can kind of go both ways. On the one hand, to, to call it philosophy is to put it into the straitjacket of uh, a, a Western tradition philosophy, which is Greek, and it's kind of different but not to call it philosophy is somehow not to honour it properly on that. What's your take on, on that idea? One obstacle to understanding Chinese philosophy belongs to us, and that is that our missionaries converted it into something that looks like our Western religion. The, the other problem is that East Asia, beginning in Japan, um, but then China, Korea, Vietnam, um, at the end of the 19th century, imported the language of Western modernity, and created a new Chinese, Japanese, Korean, Vietnamese language to synchronize their traditions with Western modernity. And they imported at the same time the Western institutions of education with our curriculum. And so I teach in a philosophy department here, Jiuxia, that's Japanese, Tetsugaku. Uh, I teach metaphysics. Xing uh, Shangshu, that's a translation of, of Western metaphysics, and so on. Loji is logic, you know. And so, so the language that we use is a Western language. But what is really interesting, uh, Julian, is that when Buddhism came into China, it transformed China, but China also invented its own Buddhism out of this ontological way of thinking. So that Chan Buddhism and Huayan Buddhism and San Lun Buddhism is a Chinese Buddhism that has been that has been filtered through this indigenous way of thinking. Um, when Marxism came into China, it has been retrofitted and made into something that is profoundly Chinese, historicized, localized, and so on. And what is happening right now in China is that this language of modernity that was imported to translate the West has become a Chinese modernity. It, it, it has been translated. So a word like transcendence or a word like universal uh, you know, the, the Chinese terms that we use to translate these terms now mean something that are that is Chinese. They don't mean what universal and transcendent meant in the classical uh, Greek tradition. Very interesting. And now, well, one thing you did say uh, kind of in passing almost at one point was you referred to I think, the ontological and zootological sort of ways of going as both you know, deep ways of thinking as a, as a phrase like that. And I just wondered about this because... 
a lot of what you're saying, you know, if we read between the lines, which is dangerous, you know, we might want to, we might think that what you're actually saying is that although, you know, there are things to learn on both sides, that in a sense, the zootological way of thinking is, you know, generally more often than not, shall we say, uh, superior to the ontological uh, way of thinking. So, to, so, I mean, do you, and, and in saying that one might be better than the other, maybe not for, for all purposes, but, you know, do you see these as just two different kind of ways of looking at the world, both equally have their merits, both equally available to abuse or misuse? It's just a question of when you use them. Or do you find yourself, you know, commending one more than the other? Uh, but uh, that was the point that I was trying to make earlier, Julian, and that's that um, within the Western philosophical narrative, we have rejected, like, ontological thinking is categorical thinking that denies change human being you're a human being and your identity as a human being is not dependent upon uh, some kind of doing some kind of making you a human being is what you are so that's a denial of change the greek response to the problem of change to the problem of identity was to say that change is unreal You've got two worlds. You've got a world that is unchanging. That's the real world. And then you've got the world of change that is kind of an imitation of that unchanging world. That was the Greek response to the problem of change, to deny it. And so at the end of the uh, 19th century, the Western philosophical narrative, without reference to the Chinese tradition, decided that that's a bad idea, that we have to take change into account. Change is real. And so you have process philosophy, Whitehead, Bergson. You have uh, phenomenology that says bracket out. Uh, you, you have uh, pragmatism that says that the human experience is empirical, is a radical empiricism. It's all about experiencing. And so Western philosophy generally has said that that ontological way of thinking, that old way of thinking, has produced benefits that we ought to recognize but at the same day gave us one kind of science, but we've been we've gone beyond Newtonian science. Science has become something different. We had one kind of logic, uh, a kind of of a and a categorical kind of logic. But today, logic, uh, mathematics, uh, these are all being reinvented in a, in a way of 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 appreciating that they are that these rational structures are located within the process of change. Now, now, we're talking about philosophy, but presumably uh, you know, this philosophy is very much embedded in a culture which is, has been shaped by that culture and it shapes that culture in return. I'm wondering, you know, China is fascinating for people around the world. People recognize that China is is re-emerging as the, the global power that is been for for many of its uh, for much of history um or let's say one of the, the greatest largest most populous nation on earth and increasingly economically powerful too i think people kind of want to understand china but perhaps they don't always do so is there anything in what you've been saying in your talk today which can help us to understand the china of today if we go back to Leibniz, uh, Leibniz has his Novissima Seneca, News from China. And in this uh, text, Leibniz, this is at the beginning of the 18th century, uh, says that there are two centers of civilization on the, on the planet. One of them is, is Europe and one of them is China. And they're really very different. 
And Leibniz, you know, is a universalist. He's an ecumenicalist. He's a federalist. He's a person who wants one language in the world. But at the same time, his account of the differences between Europe and China are very much like mine. You know, uh, he, he uh, gives an account in that text very much like mine. But then what happened with what followed from the 18th century with European imperialism and all the rest of it, the British Empire and so on, is that uh, China um, uh, became the Chinatown of the world with a wall around it. And what has happened in our own time is it, it's not that, that the rise of China really began with Deng Xiaoping in uh, 1978 and the open door policy. The, the China that has appeared, the China that we could ignore as the Chinatown of the world, really appeared in the, uh, at the beginning of the 21st century. And, and so in two decades, all of a sudden, this world that is not a country, I mean, China has 200 million more people than Africa. China's, the population of China is almost twice the population of Eastern and Western Europe combined. And so China, we're not talking about a country, we're talking about a continental civilization. Within one generation, uh, China has, has modernized in a way that humanity has never seen before. It's unprecedented what has happened in China um, in, in, this, in such a short period of time. If, if, if what happened in China happened in Belgium, it would be a miracle. But what happened in China in this continental civilization is just quite remarkable. And so whatever we have to say about China, we have to allow that something, you know, uh, something good happened for the Chinese people. That when I came to China for the first time, the mainland China in 1985, it was, it was dirt poor. It, everybody wore the same clothes. Uh, there was no food. There was no color. There was no light. And so that's 1985. How long ago is that? And now there's a, a, a 58 kilometer bridge that goes from Hong Kong to Macau to Zhuhai. There is a, a transformation of, of China that has made it into modernity. Look at the, the rail system, you know, the, the bullet trains. Look at the, 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 the tallest building when I came into uh, China in 1985 was the Peace Hotel, 23 stories. Now there's 1,500 skyscrapers in Shanghai, more than New York City. This world has, has changed in one generation, and 10 years from now, China will still be here. 20 years from now, China will still be here. And so without being an apologist for, for China, what I would say to, to the people who are listening is that we have to learn to understand and to deal with China in a different way. This kind of, of, of anti-China sentiment that, that, is, that is pervasive in our governance, in our media, and so on, is not telling uh, the, the, the story of China. Earlier you were talking about how in the Confucian text, Confucius uh, is often asked about heaven, life after death, etc., and sort of says, focus on, on life now. And um, John Cleaver was asking, you know, so is life after death a non-question for Confucius? Was it too difficult to offer an opinion? I wondered, as well as just directly answering that, what does Confucius tell us to think about, as it were, 
what happens after we die. There may not, they may be agnostic about an afterlife, but is there anything there about what thought we should have for what for our legacy, if you like? Yeah, no, it's really quite easy to answer that question, uh, Julian. Um, do you look like your grandpa? <laughs> Apparently, I do. Yeah, I've got the same. Uh, unfortunately, I've got the same barrel belly. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, what you have in in this uh, Confucian worldview, this zoetological worldview, is the idea that ancestors live on in their progeny. It's most immediately available to us physically. Like we can see, you know, a lineage, a family lineage passing on its physicality. But at the same time, you're passing on the values, you're passing on the culture, you're passing on the music, you're passing on the rational technologies, you're passing on the linguistic proficiencies and so on. That in this Chinese world, the idea is that you don't really die. It gives us living unto death. I think the, the Confucians give us living unto life, you know, that in this world, you belong to a lineage. We all know that the Chinese surname comes first, and then the given name comes second. And that's the idea. The surname is the tong, is the persistence. And the given name is the bian. What can Julian contribute to his family lineage? And so there's that way of thinking about, about uh, life and death, and that is that, that we live on in the people who come after us. I believe there's an idiom which is something like you should aim not to live behind a stench that lasts for a thousand years or something. Is that right? Is there some kind of idiom like this? The one thing maybe that Chinese have the most difficult sort of problem in understanding is the concept of, of original sin. Like you begin from the idea that that's the stench of humanity and somehow or other we need salvation. We need to get out of that problem. That would never work in the Chinese tradition. The Chinese tradition is all about, about culture. It's about poetry. It's about like what has brought this world together. When you think of this continental civilization called China, is is kind of like a, a centripetal whirlpool that has pulled all of these different people, you know, the same diversity that you find in Europe. Uh, that you find in Africa, that has pulled it all together to have both a shared identity and its own difference. That notion of Edo Bufan, the inseparability of one and many, has, has, has brought all of these people together with one identity, but also with uh, their own regional identities. And, and, and so this, this shared identity is a celebration, it's the rejoicing. Um, the, the word music and the word uh, rejoicing is the same character in Chinese. So the aspiration in the tradition in trying to transform the ordinary into the extraordinary is to try to produce a musicality in the human experience, to, to, to try to produce this rejoicing that comes with growth, with education, with creativity, with beauty. Thank you for listening. There are plenty more episodes in this series, so do subscribe on whichever platform you use, leave us a review, and tell your friends about us. You can also watch video versions of all the talks and many more from previous years on the Royal Institute of Philosophy's YouTube channel. And you can sign up to the Institute's newsletters and find out about our live events at royalinstitutephilosophy.org 
and follow us on Twitter or Facebook. So until next time, if nothing prevents, goodbye. <laughs>